Okay, we're joined today by Richard Watson, who was last week's number 10, the Don's Top 20 count. And he's the first guest, would you believe, Richard, that is having their second appearance on a pint mm-hmm. with Sean Bay. So you're very privileged. Richard Watson is a futurist from a company called Now and Next. Others as well. He's written many books. He speaks a lot about what the future will hold for us. Two years ago, we met in a cheese shop in London and uh, he gave me his views on, on what was happening. Well, did you predict this? Well, I didn't predict the cheese shops shut down, but um, <laughs> did I predict this? Yeah, well, kind of, along with a load of other people. Um, I mean, it's in four of the five books. It's on my risk radar. It's on both trend maps going back to 2007. The most notable thing is I did sit in a cabinet office workshop on extreme risks. And um, the widespread agreement was, that, yeah, this was probably the most likely high impact event that anyone could imagine. I mean, it still caught me out, though, when it happened. I mean, you know, you can see the shadow of the future in this sort of vague sense. Um, and you can speculate and talk about things happening. But when they actually do happen, you, you can still get slightly caught out. Although we were, I think, more prepared than most, which was quite useful. We were meaning who? The British government or the world? You know, who was unprepared? Oh, everybody. Yeah. everybody. Oh, I thought you said we were more prepared. Sorry. No, I was, in our house, we were more prepared. So, so we, we've got a few things. I mean, I'm at the end of paranoid. So we've, got a, we've always got a few things knocking around just in case. Some things were fabulous. So just before everything ticked off, we decided it might be a good idea to get a table tennis table, which has resulted in me injuring my arm. My foresight in having a lot of cash in the house proved a complete waste of time because nobody wants it. We've still got quite a lot of harissa paste in the cupboard, but, you know, we're, we, yeah. Um, and I think the other thing is, I think really early on, we thought, this isn't good. And I remember vividly, really early on, there was something like 120 cases in Britain, but I knew eight of them. And I thought, that uh, isn't possible. Yeah. That's not right. Your numbers are wrong. It's way higher than that. Yeah. Did they, all yeah. Re- did they all recover? They got it in really varying degrees. I don't know anyone directly that died of it. I know somebody indirectly that died of it, and I know somebody directly that died of not being able to get to a hospital. Um, you know, you've got couples where the woman gets it and she just feels shit for about four days and takes a few lemsip, and the guy gets it and can't move for a month. Um, mm. Or you have a family of five where they all had it, and the fit 50-year-old dad, who was seriously fit, just got absolutely whacked by it. And then it sort of went with different, different degrees of severity down to the youngest one that didn't even know he'd had it. But they were all tested, and the youngest one did have it, but he didn't even know. And it's variable, to say the least. I was watching Bill Gates on uh, CNN's uh, global, what do they call them, town halls with Anderson Cooper the other night, and Bill Gates was just saying, we have not even begun to tackle this. What's your view on second waves? Are we out um, of the woods? Is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better? I flip-flop, if that's even an expression, between extreme optimism and extreme pessimism. My current situation is I'm optimistic that there's no significant second wave. Although if you saw Bournemouth Beach the other day, you know, I'm beginning to wonder. And I'm confident that the economic recovery is going to be quite a fast snapback. Partly because, I mean, a very significant second wave in an English winter doesn't bear thinking about. And also, I don't think anyone would take any notice of a lockdown a second time. They've had enough. Um, there is no guarantee we'll get a vaccine. I mean, the common cold is, is a COVID virus. We've never had a vaccine for that. I mean, I think we probably will get a vaccine, but it's by no stretch guaranteed. And it also it has to be ubiquitous. It's not just a few people. It's, it's got to be widely available. So 
I, I've given up trying to work out what's going to happen. I mean, I more than about a week in advance. I mean, I played a game recently of we booked tickets to Greece yesterday, which is like being a futures trader. So I'm weighing up. At the moment, it's technically impossible unless you quarantine. But my bet was they were going to they were going to loosen it on the first of July with no quarantine. This morning we find out they're loosening on the sixth. So I'm really glad we didn't book earlier. Um, but then, you know, you get there and then nothing's open or you get a second wave and everything shuts down again. So you're juggling all these things. And even the idea of going away, some people would say is pretty silly, but, um, you know, it's a bit of a gamble. But there's always the possibility you might get locked down on a taverna in Santorini, which would I, be that has been at the back of my mind, actually. Yeah, <laughs> that, there are worse places to get locked down. And actually, if it gets locked down again in the winter, you know, my eyes would be firmly on Australian beaches in midsummer and that would be pretty tough. So uh, yeah, uh, beyond beyond the tiny bit of forward thinking, I'm I'm just not engaged with it because nobody knows. There are too many variables. Um, we don't have really hard data. The science is evolving the entire time. But I think you know, I think America is is an interesting one to look at as a case study because they never really went into proper lockdown. Donald Trump has been denier of this thing, thinking it's yeah. a conspiracy theory from day one. They then had the unfortunate death of. Mr. Floyd and uh, the resulting pandemonium that broke out across the entire country. And now this massive uptick in cases and uh, your point about Bournemouth Beach. If we, if we let our people out, if they all start bumping into each other and hawing all over each other, then we're, 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 we're likely well, to get you know, that's tricky, isn't it? Because younger people generally are fairly immune from it. I mean, America genuinely scares me. I mean, you've got this sort of empowered individualism, which basically means don't tell me what to do. I don't like the government. You've got a you've got a devolved power structure, so it's very difficult to just uniformly lock everything down. You know they've clearly got no health infrastructure that, would, that is of much use unless you've got a ton of money in this instance. So that yeah, they scare the pants off me along with a few other places. I mean I think India, Brazil, but it's really interesting how variable it's been. Places that you think would have been in a lot of trouble have done okay. I mean it looks like the UK is a bit of a mess. I mean I think we took some pretty bad decisions, but you know I'm I don't think we should be too quick to blame because. You just had to make decisions on the fly. Yeah. There, there was almost no data. You know, people talk about the science. The science was evolving. There almost mm. was no science in the early days. So they're going to make mistakes. You know, um, I think they made some absolute ridiculous ones. I mean, I still don't understand why we have a quarantine after, after the sort of uh, the R rates declined. And, and yet anyone can come in during the raging pandemic. I've never understood that. The face mask fandango as well is hilarious. I mean, that again, I mean, I will, I, I think that's mainly reassurance. My understanding of face masks is there's different types of face masks. There's a the sort of face masks the medic in COVID wards are wearing, which are very serious masks and worn properly. <laughs> and then there's the stuff people are walking around the high street in that with, with huge, great gaps around the side. They're better than nothing. And actually, yes, we should, but you know, the reason we didn't get them is because they didn't have them. I mean, I, I know a couple of um, NHS consultants and they were ordered not to wear them in the hospital to begin with because they didn't have enough to go around. I mean, just madness. Madness. How have you found, well, what have you, what are your views on this? I, <laughs> we've waffled about this for every episode for the last while, but I mean, I find it really interesting that the futurist is saying, um, I, listen, I'm not looking any further than next week. But I was, as you were saying that, I was also kind of wondering, isn't it interesting that like it's affected human behavior so much because it's like a sudden change and there's uncertainty and like none of us have ever lived through the entire world just turning off and turning back on again. And like, what do we do with that? And you can see people behaving erratically because of it. But then at the same time, I kind of think we're at a kind of weird point in history that we're so sure of everything we're used to. Like when you were talking about 
it's kind of like you have to roll the dice to decide whether you're going to be able to go away or whether you, but like since when did we get this idea that we're actually allowed to know what happens like we come from having to hunt and gather and you know we might get eaten and suddenly we're kind of like oh god we don't know if we're going to, our holiday is going to go ahead and how do we cope with that i don't know if it's just me but there is something oddly satisfying about people being caught out in such a major way because of that sort of human hubris of knowing everything and you can put numbers against everything and measure things and uh, we're so in control. And then you pull the rug out from underneath all these so-called experts. There is something, I suppose you can get whatever pleasure you can get at the moment, but there is something weirdly satisfying about that. But yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a book that, I mean, everyone's talking about, you know, um, Camus and the plague. The, the, The book it reminds me of is E.M. Foster and the Machine Stops, where everything just completely comes to a halt. And what, the other thing that I think is interesting is a lot of the stuff that's happening was happening already. It's just fast-tracked it. So I think we were already going into a recession. We were already working from home more. We were already shopping online. It's, it's just sort of turned the volume up to 11 on, on a load of stuff. I also think actually there was a sort of underlying current of, of anxiety before this even kicked in. And this has just tipped people over the edge. I mean, the mental health aspects of this are just off the scale. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't agree with Trump on a single thing, but the one thing I think I possibly do agree with him on is I think that the aftermath could be worse than the actual event. I mean, I, yeah. I think he opened, he opened too soon. But that's, you know, that's the, that's the sort of thing they've been trying to juggle with, is, you know, the health-wealth thing. You can't have people locked down for eternity. You're going to have to, at some point, accept that people are going to die. And, you know, if, if you look at, you know, actuaries that, that look at life insurance and they work out how long people are going to live, they work out what a life is worth when somebody loses their life. We make these decisions all the time. And we are in this sort of slightly weird situation at the moment where with the care home thing, I mean, I don't think they have been on an equal footing. And to some extent, why should they be? This is why I shouldn't be on Twitter, by the way. You know, there was somebody complaining that their mother, who was 103, had died. And I'm deeply sorry, but she was 103. It's that thing of, was it Stalin or somebody that said, you know, one death is a tragedy, 100,000 is, is a statistic? There is a bit of that going on. I don't know. I don't know where you go with that apart from a Twitter storm. It's a tricky so, one. One of the things that I was just to the dance point there about switching it off and switching it back on again in computer parlance, this idea that there's so many things that need fixing, including climate change, including poor hospital and unfit for purpose hospitals, and a lot of other things, possible universal basic income, something I know you've you've been predicting for quite some time. And yet now that we're starting to come out of it, I feel like it's it's just back to the same old, same old, where we're missing this great opportunity to reset humanity. Well, I've, I've touched on this, I think, a bit in this thing I've, I've done um, called the, uh, the Cronona Chronology, where at the moment, if, if you take my optimism at face value, there's not a significant, you know, there are small flare-ups, but there's no significant second wave. The economy is not that bad. We will do what we did in 2007-8. We will patch it up. We will erase it from our memories because it's a bit awkward. And we will get back to normal busy behavior as soon as we possibly can, which on one sense is great, on another sense is a massive lost opportunity. What you had in the very early days of lockdown, people had time on their hands, they couldn't do very much. They were thinking for the first time deeply about how they want to live. I mean, deeply philosophical questions. How do I want to live my life or whatever's left of it? And that kind of evaporated as, as soon as there weren't queues outside Aldi to some extent. But it could come back. I mean, you know, if we get a big second wave or the, or the economic aftershock is the mother of all depressions, I think that will come back and we will completely reinvent things. And that's, I mean, I, I say I want that to happen. I, I mean, I do and I don't because the, the cost of it would be immense, but the end point would be rather good potentially. 
But I'm, yeah, I'm cynical. At, you know, all these articles, you don't see them as often anymore, but all these people saying everything's going to change. Nobody will ever go back to work in an office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, was interview- I was listening to an interview with Toby Ord. Are you familiar with him? No. He's involved in existentialism for the human species, and he's, he, he looks at two things. One are, are uh, geographic, will Mother Earth kill us or will we kill us, right? Yeah. And he has this great thing where he's put bookies odds on the likelihood, right? So, for example, one is the likelihood that we would get hit by an asteroid or comet such as that which killed the dinosaurs. Now, what has apparently happened in the last 20 or 30 years is that NASA have managed to chart 95% of all known asteroids that are flying in our general direction that are over you know, a kilometer wide. And the likelihood of us being killed by an asteroid is something like, you know, 250,000 to one or something. Then there's things like a pandemic or a plague, which kills 90% of the people, but maybe leaves 10% standing or kills 100% of the people. Again, he has odds of something like 100,000 to one that that will happen because we will grapple with it and people will survive and go forward. When it comes to human error that might kill us all, such as, I guess, nuclear war breaking out or, or, or other not dealing with climate change, which I guess is probably a Venn diagram meeting. His odds are one to six to one in the next hundred years that we are likely to wipe yeah, ourselves there's, out. There's some real pessimists out there. There's um, Martin Rees at Cambridge that doesn't have particularly good odds. There's David Attenborough. I mean, there's, I, I did this, I say this risk radar and, and I was looking at, I think it's the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. They are wildly optimistic. I mean, they're in the 90% chance of, of humanity still being here at the end of the century. Um, I mean, this is, this is a slightly old... Um, of science stuff in the sense of you know there was one of the theories we've never bumped into aliens is the fact that they all end up killing themselves before they progress to a level where they can come and say hi um so that's that's distinctly possible i would agree that the most likely way we wipe ourselves out is probably human stupidity i'm really careful of saying things to some extent because i don't want things to come true but um you know I, i really worry if america turns into the bloodbath that it could you know second wave lots of people with guns and Trump's facing this sort of election, what is he going to do? He'll do what most politicians will do. He'll create some sort of diversion by probably starting a war with somebody. Yeah. He'll start <laughs> blaming China for everything. And, and the potential for that to go completely wrong is, is reasonably significant. I mean, there's that John Bolton thing at the moment saying if he gets a second term, he'll go rogue. And that, you know, that's a genuine worry. I think I was really deeply anxious about him in the early days. I, I used, you just can't. He's just a sort of purveyor of jokes these days to me. I mean, you know, yeah, he could kill us all, but, you know, I'm not going to worry too much about that. It's that, you know, it's the great love island. It is what it is, which I think has its origins in Stoic philosophy. You know, we're going to worry about the things we can worry about and change. And Trump, I can't change, so I'm not really going to worry about him too much. you think he's going to get elected in November? Ooh, boy. I think it's going to be damn close. And you worry about meddling in that election. Um, the other thing, by the way, just as a side, the, the, the two things that remind that stuck in my head from this whole pandemic were on the, on the news. One was, a, a, you know, I'm sitting in an acre of garden and we've got table tennis table and I'm to some extent, you know, so blessed. And there was a young mother with two kids in the 14th floor of an apartment block with not even a balcony and they'd shut the playground downstairs and you go, how on earth have you survived three months? But then the, the other one that, that's relevant to this conversation that, that I remember was, they were interviewing people in a school playground that had been turned into a food bank in the north of England about whether schools should go back. And there was this woman, again, this is why I shouldn't be on Twitter, there's a woman who, quite frankly, was the size of a block of flats. Let's, let's not beat around the bush. She was morbidly obese. She'd got a pram. I couldn't see in the front of the pram. She'd got two kids that 
were really over, seriously, dangerously overweight. And she's putting these enormous bags of frozen chips in the back of the pram whilst being asked whether the kids should go back to school. And she said, no, it's not safe. I'm not sending them back until it's completely safe. And you go, I think you've got a slightly warped idea of risk and probability because the thing that's going to kill you and your kids is probably not COVID. Now that's unfair because, you know, you don't know her circumstances. That's maybe the only food they can get. You can't judge them like that. But then again, you can. Um, you know, this, this sort of, and also the government has scared the shit out of people early on. So it's hardly surprised they're unwilling to sort of send their kids back to school on one level. It's really hard to do this, but it does, they're certainly not dying in any significant numbers. Kids, you know, under the, under the, or anybody really, I mean, with, with massive exceptions, but kids seem to be about the safest people on the planet from this. And I really, really worry about the mental health of, of certain age groups going back, but also the, the mental health of the parents. I mean, it is very stressful having kids at home. You know, this, this blissful idea of working from your little office and, you know, total seclusion and quiet and getting loads of work done. That doesn't work if you've got kids charging around, you know, it doesn't work very well anyway. So we kind of forget there's not a universal experience of this. There mm-hmm. really isn't. Even from country to country, whether people are working or not, what, what age their kids are, whether kids have additional needs or not. And then on top of that, there's what kind of school your kid goes to. Because, I mean, I could be talking to somebody that's a mile up the road and we assume it's the same situation. And then I find out two months in, her kids' teachers have been actually teaching them online. And they've been convincing yeah. themselves, we're homeschooling, but like, because it's only a half an hour, they teach online. And we're like, we didn't get any of that. Like, it was all yeah. left us. We didn't even get the books. We didn't get anything. So every experience is quite different. Let's say you've got somebody who's got a particularly large house great garden there's a few kids and they kind of entertain themselves maybe mum doesn't have to work from home the teacher is doing a lot of online stuff so it's kind of pretty nice i think mm-hmm. even those kids need to get back to school yeah I, I so you mentioned obesity there as well um maybe moving away from uh, coronavirus just looking at some of the other big issues that are facing we have a couple of questions for you actually yeah oh yeah in typical dom style so one of my questions was about the culture wars and, and polarized politics. And I suppose that's, it's become particularly bad in America, but we can see it like in sort of like trans rights, that there seems to be this real far right, far left and tribalism, probably exacerbated by the internet. But my question was, do you think that's going to become more and more polarized or is it somewhat cyclical? Um, if it's cyclical, it's a very long cycle. I mean, clearly there's been this polarization since the year dot, you know, you know, I don't like your God, I'm going to try and kill you kind of thing. The world got more like this after the Berlin Wall came down in 89. And we, we developed this VUCA culture of volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. And we had this sort of overlay of this empowered individualism again, where everyone was allowed an opinion. They were all equally valid. There was a sort of postmodernist sort of side to this even. You then throw in a sort of general anxiety around instability of global politics, the instability of employment. You then throw in, yeah, social media, absolutely, particularly its anonymity and the, and the ease in which you can find your tribe and also find the people that you violently disagree with. Yeah. And it's, it's become unbelievably polarized. I mean, the middle has gone, context has gone, nuance has gone. And in the olden days, you know, if somebody you, you and I would disagree with each other, but we, we could still be mates. Whereas these days, you know, if I disagree with you, you might want to literally kill me or at least, you know, I'm evil. I'm evil and must, my opinions must be erased. Now, I don't see that changing with social media in its current form, but I am optimistic because I think we are beginning to see 
I mean, today, Unilever is saying they're pulling all their advertising off Facebook, etc., because of, of the promotion of hate speech. Um, so it is beginning to, to, to change. I mean, just reclassifying somebody like Facebook as a publisher or Google as a publisher would completely change the landscape. So I think we're in for some, some dark and bumpy times for a while, but I think we will come out of it. And I think that's, that is a lesson from history and from cycles. You know, we, we push things too far, something nasty emerges, and we eventually, and in some instances slightly too late, we, we sort of pull it back again. Yeah, a longer term, it'll, we'll get to a good place. I mean, just my own kids and their use of social media has, has changed. I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember when people send text messages in capitals, not realizing what that kind of implied. Nobody does that anymore. My own kids at one point, they, they would just text or message everybody. They don't do that anymore. Some people they text, some people they call, some people they'll go and see in person. If they're looking at something like an Instagram or something, they will have different levels of Instagram accounts, some meant for just two or three people, some meant for 300. So there's, it, we're beginning to develop ways of controlling it and subtlety. So I, I, but, I, but yeah, it, right now, it's deeply worrying. And we seem to be importing that sort of red-blue thing a bit from the States into other, into other areas. There's definitely the rise of the sort of right-wing strongman in certain places, um, notably Hungary, Russia maybe not China, maybe China, I'm not sure. Yeah, and yet Black Lives Matter seems to be some sort of possible societal antidote to this, which is encouraging us to come together. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I don't think that would have come out with quite the strength without lockdown, because I think people, yeah. you know, lockdown and the, and the pandemic was exposing wrongs that, that had been around for a while, and it brought them into sort of high relief. And also people had a level of, anxiety and frustration and it, it kind of came because people have been killed by cops before but this yeah. one for some reason the timing was just it was the right kind of timing for something to happen it was just too much and the way it happened and um yeah it's 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 you know watch that i think this this could be a, a serious moment of change potentially well everyone was out of work as well so they were able to get on the streets Yep, absolutely, absolutely. I also wonder about, I mean, like, it, obviously it depends on where you are in the world, but there's a, there's a sense of the world ending and that we've no power over this. It's coronavirus and you wash your hands. Like, and, and people who are used to, particularly with polarised politics, we're used to having strong opinions and the more passionate you are, the stronger you are. But like, how, oh, we can, we can just passionately wash our hands. Like, and so I wonder if part of, not that people only went out Black Lives Matter because of it, but I wonder if there was a hunger after a couple of months of feeling this big thing happening, this huge threat, and just a powerlessness because there's no bad guy. There's no bad guy to rally against, and then suddenly we have a bad guy. That's a really interesting point. You need a focal point for your frustration, and also you've been locked down alone, and there's something incredibly empowering about being with a crowd of people physically. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't had, had a similar thing happen with China in, in terms of massive finger pointing and, and hostility mm -hmm. although that you do see shades of that already in in the u.s just going uh, back to your point about facebook though uh, richard the the problem i have with all this is who draws the line and who decides what bit is inappropriate and therefore in need of suppression and what bit isn't because that's quite a dangerous place to be that's uh, very dangerous yes place. yes it's okay for us to go i don't agree with that person that person is spitting bile and and there are some very clear forgive the pun, black and white issues. But there are some, there are nuanced issues where people, for example, might be advocating socialism or whatever, and they get shut down because as a capitalist publishing system is in place. 
How do you feel we're going to navigate that? I mean, I, I pretty much think you should be allowed to say anything. And the way to deal with people saying anything is you demolish them with reasoned argument. The problem we sort of got into slightly is back in the day, somebody would have an obnoxious view and it probably got no further than six blokes in a pub. Whereas because of the network effects of social media, it amplifies this unbelievably. I, I don't think somebody like Google or Facebook in particular or Twitter, can, and Twitter's actually not too bad, can just sit there and say, not our problem, we're just the platform. They are publishers. They do have some responsibility for this. And if they can't control it, they, they potentially have to sort of fundamentally change things. Aren't we then at the mercy of whoever runs Twitter decides what is allowed on and what is not, not allowed on, much the well, same way that the newspapers have been? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, don't, I haven't heard about it recently, but there was, the, there was going to be that sort of Facebook court for a while where they had a panel that was going to resolve disputes. But you kind of, it's going to be a bit like China or Russia, isn't it? They're all going to be sort of mates of Zuckerberg in some form yeah. or yeah. stable form, aren't they? Or it's a bit like Trump packing out the Supreme Court with people that share his views. So it is deeply, deeply problematic. And I don't have any sort of quick answers to that one, I'm afraid. I think at the end of the day, pe most people are good. Most people are sensible. You might have to give it a bit of time, but I, I'm hoping it will just sort of weed this stuff out a bit. I mean, anonymity is, is the big one, I think. If you could solve that problem so you couldn't post anything anonymously i think that would make a phenomenal difference i mean i compare that to my own driving in that i'm in a village with 500 people and if somebody's driving really badly in front of me i just wait patiently i, I don't stick my head out and give them the finger whereas <laughs> somewhere like central london i probably would because i my subconscious is i'll never see you again so i can be as obnoxious as i want to be <laughs> yeah nice one so and then the other quite thing we touched on briefly where is where do you stand now on ubi I'm against it. And this is, you know, universal basic income, or I tend to refer to big, big, in, uh, not big, a basic income guarantee. Well, we've got that right now to some extent. You know, this is furlough. And it worries me that people are now talking about their furlough. To, I mean, it's going to be quite difficult to get some people to go back to work because they're getting 80% of what they're earning before lying on a sun lounger. Why would you want to go back to work? And if your work's really shit, why would you want to go back to work? My real argument against it, and Sean, you might, you might have some empathy with this, is... Um, you know, we, we used to live in Australia and they had something very similar with Aboriginals who are generally in the middle of nowhere. There's no employment. They're potentially, you know, on land that used to belong to them and doesn't anymore. And they are given money because there's no work. So that's, it's a very similar situation. And what do they do? They essentially spend it on alcohol and beat up their partners. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't know if you'd agree with that, Sean, but there's, there's a strong element of truth to what I think I just said. It doesn't work terribly well. I think with the Aboriginal situation, there was a kind of a, it was, it was a, a mortification and an embarrassment and it was covering up for that. And it was like, yeah. versus what they should have done, which was built up proper communities for Aboriginal societies and put in, uh, you know, systems in place. It was, it's very similar to the traveling community here in Ireland. The, the money, for example, earmarked in government for the, helping the Irish traveling community was not even spent. For, for large portions of the last government over here. And, and that's a problem, you know? Like, the, you, you can't just go, oh, look, sorry about all taking your land and sorry about the way we treat you. Sorry about the stolen generation. And here, look, here's a few here's a few bucks. Buy yourself a few drinks and just shut up and get under the carpet, right? Versus, uh, and I don't mean assimilating them because they tried that in a horrific way, but actually creating a culture for them where they can thrive. But I think just giving people money isn't a solution. That's a, that's a great solution short term to get people back on their feet, to retrain them, to just help them out when they fall on bad times. But to think you can permanently give people just the money, 
it's going to go wrong, I think. I mean, it's, people, I think, somehow have this sort of romantic view that, well, well, well I'm going to sit on the beach with Shawnee and we're going to read Ulysses and write poetry. I don't think that's going to happen. They'll just go to the bookies, you know. <laughs> You've got to give them some purpose. And also, work isn't just money. It's, it's to do with community, identity. It's social. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not just that people don't just work for money in a lot of instances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I would, I would look at this from the point of view. I've been on social welfare for a long time, so I kind of know what it's like to be the person who's just handed money, and and it's not fun. It's not like there there are traps. Like the Irish welfare system is quite generous, but you're kind of they keep throwing money at you and kind of going, oh, can you work yet? No, okay, but they don't. It's made impossible, to, particularly with your single mother. It's made impossible to go back to work because you can't afford childcare, yeah. and they go, oh, okay, fair enough, just stay on it, and you're kind of going any chance we could put in some schemes to get single parents back to work so that we can actually, like for your mental health, for your self-esteem. And I, I know that I, I've come up against nasty attitudes, which aren't nice and it does affect my self-esteem, but there's often an attitude that, should we just get handed the money? Should why we get off our arses? And it is true if you just throw money at people, but I don't think it's just a case of why would people bother? I think it's a case of if you just throw money at people, but you don't empower them in any way. And then if you apply that to stuff like Aboriginal communities and people who've been marginalised in some way, you don't magic that better in two years of throwing money at them. The Don is basically looking for a job from 10am in the morning till about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. She doesn't have to have a lunch break. And no one will hire people on those terms. But now with the pandemic and people working from home, I think, that may start to change because maybe there is more room for a temporary half-day job situation. And I think yeah. that sort of thing should be looked at. The ch- universal childcare, I think, would be, a, would be a very good idea. I mean, the other thing is you don't necessarily – I think if you gave people money, you, you, you don't necessarily have to say but you have to find a job job. I mean, it could be – I just think you should do something useful in return for it. I mean, I think potentially we're going to have a lot of young people – with no jobs in the next few years. And I think just having them sitting at home is not a good thing. So what about, I mean, somebody mentioned uh, an idea to me, which I think is a good one, NHS conscription. You go and work for the NHS for a year. Now, there's all sorts of problems and reasons that won't work, but I'm sure we could make it work. And if you don't want to do that, maybe there's an alternative. You can go and pick some fruit. You can go and work on roads. You can help out in an office. You could just do something that is helping society. And it doesn't have to be full time. It's just something it was interesting, Richard, they had a, when the COVID broke out here, there was a sort of all hands on deck, anyone who can help register with the Irish version of the NHS, the HSC. And I, you know, I'm single. I have no kids. You know, I've, I'm just basically on the beach reading Ulysses and going to the bookies. And I, I wrote to them and said, yeah, I'll do whatever I can. I've got communications experience. I've got strategy experience. I've got writing experience. I, I'm an able body. I can push trolleys around a hospital, right? And a lot of people were came home from overseas who were in the medical profession. And like four, five weeks went by and no one replied to my email. And then I got an email seven weeks later saying, here's a long list of about 200 jobs that are available in the HSE. Uh, yeah. Everything from cardiologist to hospital porter. And so there was, I, mean, I actually wrote back to them and said, you know what, hire me to go and fix this bit where people are writing to help and you have no way in your bureaucracy of targeting them or speaking to them in any sort of voice that's human and, and uh, adaptable to their needs. I mean, when you were going through that, I was seeing a lot of my friends who were nurses. Some of them had finished up a couple of years ago, but they kept registered so that they could if they wanted to go back to nursing. And a load of them signed up. And six weeks on, Sean's getting this letter saying, oh, here's a list of, well, if you want to be a cardiologist, no, okay then. And you're offering, well, you know, my communications, I can help with this gigantic cock-up. 
Meanwhile, I'm kind of watching my phone and seeing six or seven of my friends going, I'm sitting here for five weeks. Like, hey, I've got my nursing scrubs. Do you want me? You said it's a pandemic. It's going to be interesting how you can criticize the NHS after this because, you know, the whole clap for carers and they're wonderful and they are wonderful, but they're also a really inefficient bureaucracy on long level, which I think had some implications around PPE. And they also... You know, this person I do know that died, she fundamentally died because the local GP misdiagnosed her twice so that oh this cancer essentially got six months on her. And then she died because she couldn't get into the... She had some, some stuff done just before lockdown, came out, needed more stuff done, couldn't go back into hospital. So, you know, yes, generally speaking, they're wonderful, but there are some... The, the bureaucratic side of things, and I think what, we, what we've seen to some extent with the pandemic is you've got this sort of public sector bureaucracy meeting government which is fundamentally private sector thinking and, and the two don't work desperately well together mm. we, ha- we have a link to your I think brilliant uh, and beautifully written video of your prediction of how the world may come out of this which is, is linked in the blurb of the podcast before we leave you Richard uh, the Don has two young children as she, ref- uh, as she referred to earlier and they heard that this was happening this weekend and they wanted to ask you uh, two questions. So over to the Don. Yeah, I was thinking about what, what, what questions I might like to ask you. I'm, I'm, I was coming up with them. And then I thought, like, I'm sitting in a room with a nine and a half year old and a seven year old. Like, why are my questions important? So I, I kind of thought, like, in 2050, my daughter will be turning 40 and my son will be not far behind her. So I'd ask them. So I asked my son and he kind of surprised me. He straight away, he's the seven year old. He straight away said, Will they be able to invent a way to make people who are born blind see? Now, I clarified that with him because there'd be some language issues there. And I said, like, you know, they've got like laser surgery in that. And he goes, yeah, 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 no. But like, if you're born blind, completely blind, will they be able to invent like a way to fix that? Bionic eyes. Yeah. I, I would say yes to him. I think by 2050, we will have sorted that. I mean, it's these are sort of, you know, we've had cochlear implants for hearing loss for a while, bionic ears effectively. And I think what we're talking about here with bionic eyes. So we're not talking about smart contact lenses from Google that overlay augmented reality. We're, yeah, you can't see, now you can. I mean, at the moment, the technology is in its infancy. It's not a simple technology because the nature of sight loss can be so different. But I, I would be reasonably confident that, that by the middle of, of this century, we'll have cured that. Now, the only thing I would say here, I very long time ago, back in 2007, I did something called an extinction timeline where I, I was predicting when certain things that are in common usage today would kind of just disappear. Or so, and, and one of the things that was on there was, was blindness. I was saying, I, I can't remember what, type, what date I put against it, but I was saying, you know, blindness will not be an issue in the future. And I got two or three really quite strongly worded emails from people that were blind. There is, there is a sort of radical arm of the blind community. I mean, there's, I think there's 40 million people who are blind worldwide. There's a radical arm of it, certainly in, in some countries, that actually... I wouldn't say they like being blind, but they don't want to be cured by these sighted medics. So you, you've got to be a little bit careful about how you put things. But I, I, I think that is technologically most definitely solvable if you want it to be solved. Okay, that's an interesting one. Okay, I find it interesting that you got those, and then straight away I kind of go, it doesn't shock me either because if you're somehow marginalized, if it's that you're blind, if, there, if there's a disability issue there, um, you do sometimes, I can understand why people's back could get up and they'd suddenly kind of go, is this eugenics? We don't want to be wiped out. We are, we're valid as we are. So I kind of, I can get the emotional reaction, yeah. but I also think it'd be very different. Like 
if my daughter's 40 in 2050, if she had a child who was born blind and it was a case of we can sort this out, we have to wait the child's eight months old, but then we can sort this out as a surgery there. I think it would just become straightforward, but I can understand the emotional reaction from people who are blind and have spent their entire lives as part of the blind yeah. community. As they say, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is nervous. <laughs> By the way, the one thing I think we are going to see way before that, I mean, it's already been patented by Google, our, our smart contact lenses. So contact lenses that are connected to the internet that, that give you a sort of visual display, essentially. So this is a sort of the next iteration of the old Google Glasses fiasco. I think ultimately something you stick in your eye, I mean, it could, I mean, it potentially comes on to another question, but that could be an absolute game-changing technology. But I, I really worry. I mean, you get into sort of black mirror territory here. I worry about who's controlling what I see or what is deleted, or, you know, presumably if they'd be able to watch what I'm watching and, and it's recorded forever. And that, mm. that's deeply upsetting, potentially. That, that is creepy. It also kind of leads perfectly onto my daughter's question. So this is the nine-year-old's question. The internet is the biggest change in the past 30 years. What technology do you think will be the biggest change in the next 30 years? I think conventional wisdom would probably say artificial intelligence, and a lot of people would say artificial general intelligence, where machines are not just better than humans in a particular area, a very narrow area, but they are more capable and more intelligent than humans across the board. I am skeptical about AGI. So I'm going to plump for um, BCI, which is a brain-computer interface. So this is essentially thought control. So we, we control devices simply by thinking about things. There's no keyboard, there's no mouse, there's no scrolling, there's no tapping. We just think about things. And this exists in a, in a crude way already. I mean, there are wheelchairs that are thought-controlled. There are computers that you can operate with your mind alone for people that are severely um, disabled. I think uh, Microsoft are looking at this, I think, and, and a few others. And even, you know, getting machines to understand what mood a user's in as well bumps into this a bit. But essentially, we're talking about control. Now, whether that – and I think that'll, that, that could be a biggie – whether that gets into a kind of um, the ability to read somebody's thoughts is a whole different ballgame. We might leave that for Black Mirror again. Yeah. See, now that, when you say all that, that terrifies me. And then I immediately think, okay, but like if you had told somebody 30 years ago that like our phones are going to be able to follow us around, that we have this device that like, you know, other people can click onto a website, they can see where we are, they can see what we're thinking, they can see what we're listening to. There's somebody in Google who can check. That would be terrifying to somebody 30 years ago. We'd go, Jesus, like, where's the privacy? That's kind of, they would, that, they would find that black mirror territory. So I wonder if that were to happen and if we had that technology, what good reason, because you know, there's always a good reason. We all, we, we all go for it because there's this benevolent thing. Like, Obviously, for instance, a wheelchair, like that, if they can read your thoughts to the extent they can control a wheelchair, that's a really good reason for somebody who's profoundly disabled. So I'm wondering, what good reason will walk us into that? Convenience. <laughs> it's just faster. People seem, seem to equate doing things faster with doing things better, which I would challenge. But I just think, yeah, it, it would just be done quicker. I mean, I would worry about privacy, although some people would say, Facebook can already read your mind. What are you worried about? But potentially, that is really seriously the end of privacy. When yeah. people start not being able to sort of collect what you're thinking, that is unbelievably scary. Last question from me, Richard, before we let you go. Give me a date that we're going to walk on Mars. Do you know how far away Mars is? Yes. Do you know, I, like how inhospitable the... I mean, Musk is delusional. I... I uh, <sighs> Uh, 
John, you wouldn't even go to visit Leitrim. Why are you worried about <laughs> I mean, Morris? I mean, yeah, I think actually there's a really important point here. Why are we, and it's usually men, by the way, of a certain type. Why are we so fixated on walking on Mars when we've got a billion people on the Earth that don't have access to fresh water? What the fuck is that about? You know, why don't we look after the planet we've got, which as far as I can see is a bit of a one-off and it's fucking nice. Rather than trying to, I mean, I think the exploration thing is fine, but to seriously think we want to leave this planet, just consign it to the dustbin. But to answer the question, well, certainly not before 2050. Will we do it this century? I'm going to go out on a limb and say no on the basis that I won't be around at the end of the century to be called on that. (laughs) (laughs) Richard, where can people find out more about you and all your work and books? Um, They can find me at nowandnext.com or they can just sort of go on Amazon and and stick my name in as an author. The last book was Digital Versus Human, um, which is about artificial intelligence and various things. But there are others, including Future Vision, which is about scenario planning. There's The the all-time classic is Future Files, which was written in 2006, published in 2007. So there's a level of accountability in what I was saying on that. How have you come out of it? Um, I actually honestly haven't read it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you write a book and you're constantly reading it the last thing you want to do is read your own book i did try to read it once to try and do the sort of tick cross maybe thing and it became so tedious i haven't done it so i have literally not read that book in about 10 11 years i've looked at chapters um mm. but i have not I, in fact i really ought to do that i really ought to sit down with it and and, and go through it well especially in your profession maybe you're like the sort of Lionel messi of uh, of futurism and you've got all these predictions right we will is, there anything, is there anything weird? Is there anything weird? Like uh, this is going to sound bizarre, but like things like um, you know Nost- Nostradamus and things like Marian apparitions and predictions, all that crazy juju stuff. Yeah, I, I, I've been following the Marian apparitions thing, which is the last little leg of the stool that the church is teetering on, because apparently in Garabandal she's meant to be appearing, or God will be appearing in the next few years. But like, is there any? black swan mental things, which would include things like asteroids, I suppose, that you feel we need to worry about or just continue to shut down? Um, I did this risk radar back in 2015 where I plotted probability against impact, and it has the pandemic on it. And I'm trying to remember what else was on it. And I'm, it's been a long time since I wrote it, so I, I don't really remember. But you can find it online. If you just do risk radar, Richard Watson, or maybe you could put a link onto this. I will. Um, I will. I'm trying to think of... of the real black swanny stuff. Well, I mean, the definition of a black swan to me is something you can't imagine anyway. So trying to come up with a black swan is nonsensical. But, <laughs> um, I mean, aliens, I mean, the only thing that would really surprise me these days. By the way, did you see at one point in the middle of the pandemic, there was front page of the newspaper saying there was an asteroid on its way, at which point I went, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, no, there, there are bingo cards that I've been enjoying the uh, pandemic bingo cards. <laughs> I think aliens is, is the only one that would really pull the rug out from under us and i don't know whether that's a good thing or bad thing are they nice ones or nasty ones i think it would certainly mess with our minds that's for sure and they wouldn't even have to visit they just have to to send a message from deep space saying hi how you doing we're coming that that's probably the only thing that would truly shock me richard watson as ever a pleasure to hear your dulcet tones we have to keep in touch more often we will certainly maybe have you back on the podcast if you'll deem to come on it and uh, really enjoyed that conversation look after yourself and your family in your acreage and uh, i will be over to see you at some point in maybe this year or next or wherever we're allowed to get out of this thank you sean and thank you do i say don or the don the don <laughs> the don thank you to the don wasn't the don a football manager don Reavy, yeah 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 We'll see you on the other side, as they say. 
Take care, buddy. Thanks. Take care. Ciao. Bye.